to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Hey there, Crooked Crew. Rob here. We're going from the weird to the surreal this week as we talk about David Lynch's 2001 uh, classic, Mulholland Drive. But before we get to that, you can find more episodes of the Crooked Table podcast on Apple, Spotify, and other podcatchers, as well as crookedtable.com. As I said, in this episode, we're going to be talking Mulholland Drive with returning guest Albert Lanier. It was a blast to have him come on and talk about this movie that I hadn't seen just because, you know, David Lynch, as I say in the episode, is a lot. Let's listen to a little bit of the trailer for Mulholland Drive, and then we'll jump right into the discussion. believe it. I'm just so excited to be here. I'm in this dream place. This one comes highly recommended. Dream place. What are you doing? Get out of the car. Yeah. The girl is still missing. What's wrong? I just don't know who I am. I wonder where you were going. Mulholland Drive. Come on, it'll be just like in the movies. We'll pretend to be someone else. Silencio. This is all an illusion. You want to know who you are, don't you? Where's this going? It's been a very strange day. I'm getting stranger. On this episode, we're going to be talking about the 2001 film Mulholland Drive, directed by David Lynch. And I'm honored to welcome back to the show, Albert Lanier. Welcome back to the show. Well, it's nice to be back on Crooked Table. And it's great to come back for a film like this one, especially Mulholland Drive. Um, It's especially fitting considering that it is 2021 and it's basically the 20th anniversary. I think this year is the 20th anniversary of the feature of the film. Uh, It was released in 2001. So that's the reason why I selected this. It's also one of my favorite David Lynch films. And it has a bit of personal resonance with me because I lived in LA twice. Okay. So, okay. And we'll definitely, we'll definitely get into that. Um, but, but before we do tell the, tell the people a little bit about who you are and what you have going on. And we haven't spoken since late or mid, mid 2019, uh, delving into eyes wide shut. So tell people what you've, you know, what you've been up to since then and what you have going on now. Well, um, well, since I was on the show to analyze Eyes Wide Shut, um, of course, what's changed has been sort of the world on one level, coronavirus. But for me, I was already retired when I did the show and I was on the show. But what appears to have changed is that I'm coming out of retirement now uh, as of um, what's occurring at present. 
Um, I'm getting ready to uh, start pounding the quote unquote internet pavement, so to speak. And I'm coming out of retirement to freelance once again, uh, maybe to be a journalist. I'm not quite sure, but I, I'm definitely coming out of retirement to freelance again after about four years of retirement, four glorious years, but coming out of retirement. And I'm also looking to, if possible, focus on film and television among types of writing I hope to do, um, if it's feasible. Um, more interviews and analysis if possible. But um, I'm also currently uh, in the process. I've been writing a blog since I had retired uh, that's on medium.com. And that deals with media and current events. No film and TV there, unfortunately. But so that's what's kept me busy uh, a little in my retirement. Uh, but right now, again, I'm, I'm slated to get back to freelancing. And um, I'm also engaged in uh, doing more film analysis like this, more uh, appearances on podcasts and talk shows. So I'm looking to do more of that. Not only that, but also I'm engaged right now in trying to set up bookings on shows to discuss the case of Sam Cooke, the singer, songwriter, producer, uh, who's one of the focal points of the movie One Night in Miami. I believe is uh, directed by, I think it's Regina King, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And so uh, who I'm sure a number of people who listen to the show may be familiar with uh, if you know film and TV. So um, I'm kind of trying to set that up in regards to bookings right now and in terms of shows and discuss that case. I've actually been interviewed in regards to true crime. Uh, which wasn't something I was interested in until I was interviewed uh, by a uh, podcast called Parallax Views. I've been on that show for other reasons, but we did a couple of uh, episodes called uh, the, the Dark Side of Hollywood, where I did my analysis of the Bob Crane case, the death of uh, Home and Hero star Bob Crane. He also did some movies, including some for Disney. And also um, the Robert Blake case, also the death of Bonnie Lee Bakley, who was his wife. So I analyzed those and I hope to analyze uh, Sam Cooke, especially in regard because there's movie One Night in Miami has come out recently. And I think it's drawing uh, some nice critical attention and certainly some interest from the general public watching it, uh, streaming and otherwise. So that's what I'm engaged in right now. But my main focus right now, again, is getting back to analyzing films on podcasts and talk shows and in coming out of retirement. And uh, freelancing again. I uh, I think the I think the focus on Sam Cooke makes a lot of sense as, as you were saying the timing with the one night in Miami and it looks like right. Leslie Odom Jr. It's a Tony Award winning like star of uh, Hamilton and things like that. That uh, it sounds like he's probably going to get an Oscar nomination for his performance. It's looking that way in that film. Oh, so I think if I think yeah, it's it's exactly the right time to to right. um, you know open that up again. And I you know speaking as as uh, as a fan of your work and as someone who you know i think you really elevated this uh show when you came on to talk about eyes wide oh. shut it felt like film school in a way oh, really? which, that's a compliment um oh thank so, you that's so very I, nice I, of you you've been very I, complimentary i have to say i really thank you for the nice things you said about me on twitter and and elsewhere it's really quite flattering and, uh, well, film school, that's interesting. Uh, I didn't go to film school. I just went to school. I just graduated from a liberal arts college with a bachelor's right. degree. 
So I didn't study film formally. I did take like a film course once, but I didn't study it formally. Well, uh, your, your, but, your level of analysis that you brought to it, I thought was really, was really strong. Uh, as someone oh. who hadn't seen Eyes Wide Shut until we did the podcast, same with Mulholland Drive, which we'll get into. Uh, right. I, I thought you you brought a, a you brought a lot a lot of interesting points and a lot of uh, strong interpretations and things like that. So I I really enjoyed our conversation and I'm I'm so I'm glad to hear that you're focused you're making that you know part of your uh, focus going forward is trying to right. To, I to hope to question. write about film again. I haven't written about film in um, as some listeners or any who are familiar with me online but know I was a reviewer for Ain't It Cool News, the film website. Mm. Uh, and I stopped. I was a reviewer for them uh, covering film festivals here in Hawaii, mostly, from about 2002 until about 2010. So I haven't written about film in over a decade. So hopefully, if everything works out, I'll get to write about film again. And, um, and TV, maybe. I haven't, hadn't really done TV, but I'll get to write about film and some other aspects, but that's what I'm hoping is to get yeah. back to hopefully to some extent, focusing to a great extent on entertainment, if not share that focus with other aspects. Right. Right. Absolutely. Or, or you know, in, in applying your entertainment knowledge and in, in, to other elements of the world, or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as you, you were mentioning film and television, the lines are so blurred now anyway, that I feel right. like so much. And, and, you know, transition, transitioning to David Lynch now, just like, mm-hmm. I, you know, Twin Peaks, the return, for example, which I, I didn't right. see that because I still haven't caught up with the original series all the way through. Uh, that is another example where people were like, no, this, this feels like a, film it's a tv series but is it a tv series uh so i think that's you know he's one of those artists that's really sort of helped perpetuate that that blurring the line of of where where film ends and television begins i think we're seeing that a lot now this season with the uh the small acts series of movies that uh, Steve McQueen directed. So like a lot of people are, are just trying to dis- differentiate. Well, is that, is that, is there, are those individual films? Is that a mini series is like, well, how does that work exactly? So I think this is this film in, in particular, Mulholland drive is, is an interesting example of how those kind of those, how those different media kind of merge and, and flow into each other because as I'm sure you're aware, Albert, like Mulholland Drive was conceived as a television series. Did you want to, to to delve into that a little bit and tell tell listeners about the first time that you saw this film? Right, I saw this film in theaters in 2001, and by that time, of course, it was a uh, feature length film, theatrical right. release. It had won David Lynch uh, a directing award at Con at the Cannes Film Festival which I think he shared that year. And what was interesting about Mulholland Drive and looking at its backstory, to use that cinematic term, um, is that Mulholland Drive started out as an idea that was pitched to ABC Network. And uh, because as uh, you're aware, and I'm sure that uh, people who are David Lynch fans who will no doubt listen to this are aware Lynch had done Twin Peaks for ABC. He did that show, which in my view was a groundbreaking TV show. Mm. And um, in 1998, he had pitched 
the idea from Mulholland Drive to ABC. He got a green light to do a pilot. He shot a pilot. And my understanding, I, I saw an interview where Lynch himself said that some executive had seen the, the I guess, a tape of the pilot at six o'clock in the morning when he was <laughs> making calls and drinking coffee or whatever and decided, ah, this is not going to work. Now, here's the interesting thing more recently with this. When I do analyses, I don't go to watch the film again. I rely on the experience I had watching it for the first time in theaters. But I did watch the what is supposedly the pilot for the Twin Peaks, uh, not Twin Peaks, but for Mulholland Drive, which is supposedly on YouTube. I, I just saw it recently. And it's about, I guess, nearly an hour and a half. It's interesting. I, I won't discuss it. I won't go into detail about it here. It, there, it says the unaired Mulholland Drive pilot, which you can find on YouTube. If you're a fan of Mulholland Drive, the film, and a big Lynch admirer, I recommend taking a look at that pilot just to give you a sense of sort of the evolution of this project. Uh, and because it might be interesting to you. But I did get to look at the pilot. And I'll leave it at that. Uh, I think the pilot was unfairly scrutinized. I'll just say that. Uh, especially from what I hear of this executive at ABC who took a look at it. In any event, Lynch um, had managed to get, I think, um, international funding for this Mulholland Drive as a theatrical release, as a film project, as a feature film. It took about, I think, over a year and a half or so from the time they shot it. They managed to, you know, secure the funding and they managed to, you know, shoot more scenes in uh, to make this uh, sort of rounder, fuller film. Um, and the result is what we what you can watch on DVD or in streaming or anywhere else you can see Mulholland Drive. Um, so it's interesting. It's a film that started out as a pilot, as as a TV project. And it turned into what has become one of the most lauded films, I would argue, of the 21st century. I mean, it's topped the BBC culture poll of great, greatest films of the 21st century. And it's on the uh, Sight and Sound magazine film poll, uh, one of the more recent ones. So it's really become one of the more lauded, critically lauded films and lauded films of this uh, sort of young century. Yeah, I think that's accurate. And just for people listening who haven't seen Mulholland Drive, we were probably we are going to talk spoilers and uh, in this conversation. So definitely probably. see that as see it as blind as you possibly can. And it is streaming on HBO Max. That's how I saw it. Uh, oh, it is right it, now. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's on HBO Max right now Great. to, to Great. streaming. So. Uh, I think definitely definitely check that out and then come back to the rest of this conversation because we will be getting we will be getting into that uh, in depth. But I agree with you. I think uh, it is. It seems like to me that it is generally considered David Lynch's masterpiece. 
would you would you agree with that statement? And how, where do you think it fits within his filmography? I guess thematically, because before this, I have seen uh, I saw Eraserhead and I've seen uh, Fire Walk with Me, and I was really intrigued by. Uh, David Lynch as a filmmaker, and I meant to get to this movie much sooner, but it's one of those that I'm like, oh boy, that seems like a lot. <laughs> I have to settle, set aside some mental energy because David Lynch's movies are, you know, notoriously difficult to uh, to scrutinize, or or, or at least mm-hmm. to uh, to come to a uh, definitive interpretation of. I guess let's put it that way. Right. So where well, do you go ahead? Where do you where do you think speak to that? Well, first of all, what Lynch has said about Mulholland Drive is that there is, he hasn't offered a definitive interpretation of the film. Right. He allows, he wants the viewer to come to the film with their own uh, interpretation and their own assessment. And so what I'm doing in uh, this episode and uh, in terms of what I will be doing and discussing is my interpretation. So I'm under no illusion that my interpretation is going to be the dominant or the certified or official interpretation for Mulholland Drive. Be nice if it is, but it's not going to because this film really doesn't speak to that. And Lynch doesn't want that. He wants the viewers to do so. And I approach it from a larger view of film, which is to say that I view film as code and also as hieroglyphics and so like a code like a cipher what the viewer and the reviewer and the critic have to do is decipher the code decipher the film you know film is largely looked at as a text in film journals and academic books and so forth but i view film not so much as a text but as a code and it is, and as a cipher, and as hieroglyphics. And so, with hieroglyphics, you have to understand what the symbols stand for and what they represent. And that is how you find your way through films. And some films, like uh, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, are codes. And you have to break down this code. You have to decipher this code. You have to be able to explicate it for yourselves. You have to make meaning for you and for you primarily, you, the viewer, you, the participant, you, the individual looking at this film, this feature. And and so film as code is, is how I view sort of cinema primarily, but film in general as code or as hieroglyphics, so to speak, as opposed to text per se, though text is fine. Um, well, I mean, in, in Lynch's filmography, it's if you're coming to a David Lynch movie and you're and you're expecting literalism, you're in the wrong place. Right. I mean, that's he's that's what he's known for. That's why his movies are mm-hmm. so, you know, brilliant and or frustrating uh, to right. people because they like you know, like you were saying exactly. There is it, it's it's all it's all open to interpretation. It's all allegorical or whatever you want to, whatever, you know, whatever descriptor you want to throw on it. It's, it's more trying to capture a, a tone or a, or, you know, it's, it's, it's more trying to get a vibe across or a perspective across rather than 
rather than telling a literal story. Like there's nothing which we'll get into, I'm sure. So, and I think that to me is is why his movies are so are so interesting or so absorbing that because if you if you're coming to a Lynch movie having known you know seen any of his previous work or knowing anything about his process every little every frame has has it has more has weight every frame has suspense uh there's there's like little moments in this movie where you know they're 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 focusing on the uh, the espresso in that that meeting scene with the Hollywood director mm-hmm. and uh, the Castigliani brothers and right. little details that would otherwise seem pointless in in the hands of David Lynch. You know that everything is measured, everything is there to either uh, to either add value or uh, to, to add value in some way or another, like to contribute to something or to I feel like he throws sometimes red herrings in there too, just to, to make it, uh, to make sure that the viewer is engaged the whole way through. Do you, do you see some, do you see sort of that kind of element to his, his uh, filmmaking? Cause I do think that there's literally so much going on that I feel like sometimes things are in there that have a tangible in his, has in, in his head meaning and some stuff that's in there to just kind of toy with the dream logic of a lot of his, his work. It's interesting you mentioned that. And my take on Lynch in general, in terms of his films, is that one of the things he does is marry a profound sense of mystery at times, but also he builds menace in a way that very few filmmakers do. He utilizes the tools of filmmaking in very sensory and ambiance driven ways, his use of music, his use of sound. um, And you marry that with the visual. Sometimes it's counter. Sometimes it is sort of blended. It's fascinating that the way that Lynch works, you know, one of the few films I think that he did that don't have a quote unquote Lynchian vibe is the straight story, mm-hmm. which he did for, I think it was Walt Disney, which I think is a great film, but it's a rather simple and powerful film. It's very different from his other films, certainly very different from this one. Right. But David Lynch in regards to his oeuvre in, into his, his general mythology, so to speak, to use the term they use in TV, sort of the Lynch canon. I think the Lynch mythology is based to a great extent. Some will argue that it's based on the surface reality and then what lies beneath. That is true to a great extent. But it's the sense of uh, facade and the sense of menace beneath the facade. It's not just surface and what's beneath the surface, but it's the facade, the the sense of things that we see, that we can perceive, and then what lies beneath that, the sort of cruel, harsh, ugly, vicious, and horrible aspects of life that lie, lie beneath that. 
And that's very important for, for I think, a David Lynch film. I mean, his films are not, uh, you know, strangely enough, although he did The Straight Story, his films are not Disney films. Yeah. You know, you're yeah, not going to walk out of a David Lynch movie with a smile on your face, unless you are a surrealist. Right. <laughs> or you really like that kind of movie. Then you'll be happy. But normally you won't. Not in that I'm kind of like half in the bag for, for that. I think that, and then I could see a hundred percent why this, you know, why mainstream audiences generally aren't just aren't all about David Lynch. Why this was, you know, cost 15 million and made like seven domestically because it is, it, it is, it is a very specific uh, itch that David Lynch movies scratch that uh, you have to be someone willing to, and, you know, to watch a two and a half hour movie and be like, wait, what? <laughs> at the end and want to engage with it and want to discuss it and want to think about it and want to break it down. Uh, if you're, you know, this is not a movie for like Friday night, go, go, you know, go on a date and then just be like, all right, that was, that was, that was cool. I guess uh, it's not a Marvel movie. It's not, you know, it's right. that surreal element. And he drops that right from the beginning. I mean, we start out with the, like the swing dancing music, that little, that sequence at the beginning. And, Right. Uh, Betty's sort of arrival in Los Angeles. And like you said, that sense of menace where she's like so happy. She's like, wow, I can't believe it. And the music and all of that kind of lulls you in. But if you're, if you know what, what you're getting into with a David Lynch movie, you're already like, uh Oh, what's happening? What, what is going on? I'm worried for, for, uh, for Betty and, and, or the people she's with, because you know that it's a, a like a hair away from, from everything turning on its face. Right. See, notice that when you look at the very beginning of that film, you notice what Lynch is doing, again, with the tools of, of the trade. Right. You know, you see those uh, dancers and they're in, I think, a purple background, if I recall correctly. But they're right. dancing and you have this very bright background. And then you see Betty and there is this really, really harsh lighting she's overlit, right? It's almost like we're trying to see her. It's almost like when, when you are, uh, like, um, how do I put it? When, you, when you've got something in your eyes, you got liquid mm -hmm. in your eyes or something like that, and you're trying to clear it and you're trying to, the image that you see before you is not quite clear enough. It's still kind of blurry. It's still, especially if there's a lot of lighting, it's like that. So that's interesting about that opening is we see Betty, we see the people she's uh, that are uh, the older people that are grouped next to her briefly. And we see the dancers in the back. And but the way it's done is so, is so otherworldly. Mm -hmm. It's not represented realistically. I guess I should begin by stating my overall thesis and praise for the film and then my my basic lynch pin forgive nice. the expression nice. of the analysis Mulholland Drive is essentially female Sunset Boulevard mm -hmm. now when I say that I don't mean a female remake of Sunset Boulevard or a reboot or reimagining but I believe that is Lynch's creating a Sunset Boulevard that is wholly different and with a female protagonist. 
Now, those that may remember the original Sunset Boulevard know that it starred William Holden and Gloria Swanson, and that William Holden played a screenwriter, so as a male protagonist. Mm -hmm. This is what, in Mulholland Drive, we have a female protagonist, really female protagonists, but a female protagonist who is an actress. So we're dealing with the film industry here. We're dealing with Hollywood. There's also in, I think, when you look at the original Sunset Boulevard, Billy Wilder's film, we get a sense of the decay, the rot that exists in regards to the film industry. It's in regards to older stars and older careers and older homes, even individuals. With Mulholland Drive, I think there's also a sense of age to some extent, not quite the same. It's not quite the same. It's not, it, you don't get that same sense of, of, you know, decades past necessarily. Although you do kind of do when you look at the, the Paramount Gate, we don't see the Paramount Pictures because it wasn't allowed when Lynch shot it, but, but we see the Paramount Gate just like it was in Sunset Boulevard, the original movie. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think Lynch stated that the car you briefly see when you see the gate, which is where Betty comes up for audition, um, is um, was a car in Sunset Boulevard. Sorry about that. That's okay. Phone interrupt us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sounds like something out of Mulholland Drive, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Leave it in. Leave it in the recording. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's sort of like... Hmm. People will de Wonder deconstruct this recording. Call me or Betty. Uh, I wonder. <laughs> no. uh, well, in any event, like I said, Sunset Boulevard is, to me, the sort of precy and thesis of this film. However, you can't sum up, and this is what's dangerous. I don't want people to say, oh, well, you think this is just Lynch's version of Sunset Boulevard. No, I think it's his Sunset Boulevard, mm -hmm. but you can't reduce it to that. So I don't want it to be seen like I'm reducing right. Mulholland Drive to Sunset Boulevard because I'm not. But if people need something to hang on as an idea of what I think in a minor way, yes, this is David Lynch's Sunset Boulevard. So... I don't know how much trouble I'll get into for saying that, but <laughs> what the hell now? Um, go ahead. No, I was going to say, uh, I have, I have sort of a, a similar thesis, but I want to, I want to hear the rest of yours first. And I'll tell you what my, having seen this, okay. having finished this movie less than 24 hours ago, what my okay. sort of interpretation is, but I want to hear the rest right. of yours first. Right now. Uh, getting to my analysis, what my analysis of, of Mulholland Drive is, is that when we look at the conventional analyses on YouTube, and there are a lot of analyses on YouTube, I mean, this is, has to be one of the most analyzed films that I've seen on YouTube. Maybe there are others, I'm sure, that had their share, but Mulholland Drive has their share. One of the, I think, analyses that's usually the standard is that the first part of this film is the dream. And the second part is the reality. So the protagonist, 
um, whom I'll call Betty slash Diane. I also call her Betty just to make it simple, but right. But Betty slash Diane. Um, that the protagonist is having a dream in the first part of the film. And thus the second part of the film is her reality, what life is really like for her. My analysis posits that there is a dream at the beginning, but the second part is also a dream. Mm. So that there is no real aspect to this movie, Mm. that there is no reality, that it is all the dream state, that it is all fantasy in a sense. It is all illusory in a sense. It is all, it is all dreamlike, but that cannot be reductionist. In other words, you cannot simply reduce it to dreaming and say, well, it's a dream you know, what I call the Bobby Ewing thesis uh, predicated on the TV show right. Dallas, where they where said it was all a dream, a horrible, horrible dream. Yeah. No, it is a dream. But what's here's the other aspect, since I believe that it is going from one dream to another dream. The other aspect is what Lynch does in Mulholland Drive that makes this such a great film. What intriguing, as far as I'm concerned, is that Lynch is essentially making a comment, commentary, you could say, not only on the film industry, not only on Los Angeles, but what he's doing is he understands that films are, of course, a process, a creative process, but also a process of actual work, production, putting things together, shooting, editing, so forth. It's a process. But dreams are also an act of creation. So what I believe that Lynch has done in Mulholland Drive is he's essentially understood that the mind in dreams creates films. We know this from filmmakers to get ideas and dreams or what have you. But what I think Lynch is also saying is that what the mind does is when we have dreams, we are creating our own films. We are creating our own cinematic product. That Hollywood, as we see, has been called the dream factory. But the mind is a factory of dreams. It creates dreams. And so we create our own movies. When we dream, we are creating our own movies. We're casting our friends, our relatives, strangers we saw, That is what happens in Mulholland Drive. When you see certain characters, for example, uh, I will cite two scenes that uh, to back up my thesis of this. The first is the the infamous diner scene with the Mm. two characters. One of the characters, I believe his name's Ben, states that he's in this diner and he chose to come to Winkies on Sunset Boulevard. He chose to come to Winkies because he had a dream about that place. And in a dream, he was sitting at the table, much like the one he was at there. And the man that he was with was there. In fact, at one point, he got up and walked away and he was closer to the door. He points, you're over there. And he said, there's also a man in my dream. I think it's it's come to be known as the monster 
basically this homeless individual. And he could see that individual, he says, through the wall. And in this scene, both of them pay for whatever they've had, come out of the restaurant, go down a flight of stairs and head to the back. And as they approach, this homeless guy covered with dirt from head to toe comes out and scares the man, scares Ben, I believe his name is. Hope I'm getting that right. Scares him so that he faints. Implication is he may be dead, but I believe he just faints. Now, I believe that this sums up my thesis in regards to and my analysis as regards to Mulholland Drive. That what he's describing is essentially analogous to the filmmaking process. I had a dream. I was in this restaurant. You were there. So shooting in the diner, you're there on location. Casting, you were there, the friends there. And something happens. There's a story and there's another character within the story. There was an inciting incident that created an act. What he's describing is the marriage between film and dreams. And so I think fundamentally, as I mentioned before, that that is what Mulholland Drive fundamentally is about. The marriage between dreams and film, film and dreams. Just as Hollywood is described as a dream factory, so uh, the mind is a factory of, of dreams. I believe that is kind of a perfect, because that's analyzed. You go to YouTube and you will see that scene analyzed to death. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you will see that is probably the most analyzed scene. And what's interesting is those characters. I think one of the guys, you see him in another scene that I uh, believe Betty slash Diane looks at him. Again, it is the, forgive me for stating this, linchpin of the film. I, and that's why I believe that the film, again, looking at the structure, going from dream to dream, and mm -hmm. that the underlying conceit of the film is the film process married to dreams and that films, the film state, uh, the dream state and the aspect of films, the process of films are married. And that's what makes Mulholland Drive fascinating to me. And I think that is the, the essential nature of Mulholland Drive. Now that's, now the diner scene is one aspect that I believe confirms this. The other is Club Silencio. Oh, there we go. That's, yeah. yeah. Mine really hinges on that, my sort of thing, but yes. Right. So Club Silencio, what do we see in Club Silencio when we, we follow Betty and Rita to this club? We see, uh, I think he's described as magician, but the host says, I hope I'm getting this right. Hi, no banda. There is no band. This is a recording. At some point he says, this is an illusion. Again, this promotes the central conceit, as I mentioned before, the fusion between the film process and the dream state, taking these two elements and bringing them, dovetailing together and synthesizing them. What that scene essentially says is that this is all much like film. It's an illusion. Films are recorded. 
the emphasis is there's no band. There's no live nature. There's no, it's not that there isn't a human nature. There are humans coming out. Guy comes out and plays a trumpet, or should I say mimes a trumpet, but we see him extend his arms and he's not playing the trumpet. Woman comes out and sings Roy Orbison's crying in Spanish, but she's miming because she collapses and the song continues. The nature of film is that film is an illusion. It is recorded, of course, it's filmed, but it is also a phenomena of dreams. Dreams are illusions in our head. Dreams are, again, like films, right? Mm -hmm. When you dream, there may be a band in your mind, but there is no band in actuality. It's just in your head. There is no band. This is a recording. So I cite the, the diner scene and Club Silencio as the two columns to support my thesis and my analysis, or should I say my analysis of the marriage between the filmic process or the film process and the dream state, which I believe is the essential nature of Mulholland Drive. That is what I believe the film is about. I think we're, we're in the same neighborhood, I think generally. so, so put, let's to, to get to, to, I, there's a lot to respond to there. So I right. think the, the dream and film connection is, is seems like it seems pretty apparent to me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I finished the movie last night okay. uh, and I didn't watch it six in the morning, like that ABC executive with the pilot. <laughs> I think this, I think Lynch movies are, I really believe like his movies are best seen late at night preferably mm-hmm. sort of alone, just kind of experienced in a bubble uh, because they are so all encompassing because they are, they do require your, all of your attention and multiple viewings a lot of times, which I have not had the benefit of uh, mm-hmm. yet with this film. So it ended. And then I was like, YouTube help me out here. So I went to YouTube <laughs> as well. I found a, a, a video by a YouTuber called nerd writer one. That's talking about mm. how, how David Lynch uh, manipulates his audience. And it really I've focused on, oh yeah, see? And it really focuses on, uh, for those who haven't seen it, it really focuses on how he upends expectations. It really, fo- it, it hinged on the audition scene and how the, the movie Mulholland Drive leverages that we've been watching movies our whole lives. So they fo- he focuses on uh, J- the Justin Thoreau character, sees her across the the set, and you're like, oh, is there a romantic connection between Betty and Adam? Uh, you know, we sort of infer a lot of things on our own. The uh, the audition scene takes place before we see Betty and Rita kind of uh, doing a read through of the script, poking fun at it, and all that stuff. And then when it happens in there, even though we know that it is a script in, in the movie Mulholland Drive that Betty is, is auditioning for something. We get wrapped up in that scene when she performs it. And I feel like that scene, the audition scene, as well as the Club Silencio thing, is David Lynch calling his shot. It's him being like, listen, you bought a ticket. You came in to see Mulholland Drive, filmed by David Lynch. You know this is all, this is all pretend, but I'm still going to get you in the end. 
Like I'm, you know, you know that you're you signed up for a movie experience. So clearly, this is a recording. Like you were just saying, uh, this is this is about the the art and deception of film. The fact that it focuses on a young actress who arrives in Hollywood and lives this whole mystery with her and and this amnesiac woman who is later revealed to be her former lover, but then also. There, you know, there's layers to that story as well. I think that the story that is the dream and then the story that is the uh, reality, I agree with you. I think those are layers of dreams. I don't think any of this is real. I think that's mm-hmm. the whole point of the audition se- se- sequence and the Club Silencio sequence is to kind of highlight that. I think that uh, the, the dream is a combination of a flashback of what really went down with, with Betty and... Uh, and Camilla, as well as sort of combining her, you know, her resentment towards Camilla. Uh, you know, she, there's a scene where she hires basically like a hitman to, to go after her and stuff. So there's like a whole thing there. But what really, what really uh, confirmed it for me is that at the in the at the very end, she is she is uh, alone. She's. You know, we, we she's grieving her relationship or whatever. You know, re- regretful of the action that she took against Camilla in her heartbreak. She is starting to uh, starting to hallucinate. And who does she see? She sees the two the two elderly people, the elderly couple that brought her to Hollywood in the first place. Mm-hmm. And they appear to her. They like stalk her and, and lead her, incite her to presumably commit suicide. But in the same position as the dead body that they see earlier in the movie. And uh, rather than that, be that being performed or that scene carrying out with any sense of reality, it's again, artifice. What happens when she pulls the gun on herself, smoke, smoke and mirrors. It's all, right. it's Precisely. all, <laughs> it's, it's to me. that's what I thought recently. Right. Absolute smoke, because you see this virtual, um, I would call it a, like a reverse fountain of smoke. Right. It's almost beautiful the way that the smoke goes up. I, I mean, I don't know how it was shot, but the way that smoke appears is very potent at the end of Mulholland Drive. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so that's, I think, th- this movie is very, this is probably obviously one of Lynch's most meta movies, but I feel like it's very self-aware and it's a magic trip. He magic trick. He starts out and says, here, Mulholland drive, blah, 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 tells the story. And then at the end, I believe it seems to me to get back to your sunset Boulevard point. It seems to me that his thesis here is you go to the movies, you see what people want you to see. You see one side of this business of this industry. This is this movie almost plays as an allegory about Hollywood stardom, about the reality of, of Los Angeles, and almost as a cautionary tale, like warning people away. Like, um, you know, this is the reality of it. Just be aware before you get off a plane, all all you know, ready for your for your big break, that there is a lot more going on here than you're you're actually seeing. Right. And and the the big the the last the final moment of the movie. So, like I said, it starts out with him thinking you're signing up to see this thriller. It's a psychological thriller, and this woman and and this uh, you know this this other other woman who's in you know 
finds her, they meet under mysterious circumstances and she doesn't know her, she doesn't know who she is and she has to, they have to unravel this mystery. That's the movie you think you're watching. You're really watching something completely different. And the very end of the movie is where they pull the, they lift the veil and you realize that you've been in Club Silencio, that you aren't watching a movie where these characters go to a club where everything is recorded. You've literally been in Club Silencio he's he's pulled one over on you you thought you were watching one thing and it turned into something else completely hence the the woman with the blue hair at the very the very last shot of the movie so that's sort of my it it seems like it's an allegory about hollywood and about sort of the the unspoken contract that an audience makes with a filmmaker and him kind of uh I guess, you know, leveraging that relationship to, to make his point even more impactfully. That's not a bad, that's not a bad analysis. It's, it's an interesting analysis. Um, I think the idea of magic trick is, is pretty apt mm-hmm. considering Club Silencio. And it's, it's not, a, it's a, it's not a bad take on, on Mulholland Drive. I will sort of expand for a little further in yeah, terms please. of my analysis to note that the first part of the film is a dream that is a desire a fantasy mm-hmm. uh, personal fantasy it's the personal fantasy of hollywood the personal fantasy of la the second dream is the reality of the reality of hollywood the reality of, in this case, Diane's life, whereas in the previous, it was Betty. And so, but they're still both dreams because in dreams, you can have dreams that are realistic. that are so realistic that when you wake up, you thought you were actually in some form of reality right. and not a dream. I think we've all had those. The first, Dream in in Sunset in um, I was going to say Sunset Boulevard, but Mulholland Drive. <laughs> um, almost fooled myself there. Hmm. The first dream in Mulholland Drive is a dream of arrival, whereas the second is a dream of rejection. It's a dream of arrival at the beginning and of ambition and the second is a dream of sort of resignation residency and rejection and so thoughts it is uh, well drives and described as a fracture narrative i prefer to see it as two sides of a coin a coin has two sides thus it's not simply one coin i think the problem that people have when they analyze this they assume that it's one kind of coin and then a different kind of coin. And my argument is it's the same coin, but two sides. Just as I said before, it's basically both are dreams, but they're both dreams about Los Angeles, Hollywood, the film industry, all of that, but still the same coin, just two sides. Uh, So I think it's misleading. You know, people are entitled to their own analysis and I, I can't say that our analysis is wrong or incorrect. In my examination of Mulholland Drive, what I see when I examine the film and I analyze it 
is that it can't be reality, but the representation of reality. And again, the representation often feels real to us. So when we look at the end, there's enough that we can see to make us see that this is not a dream. I mean, when we look at Diane's apartment and we look at her, Rita, appearing and saying, you're back. And then eventually we look and it's an image of her looking at her. Again, that emphasizes to us or really tells us essentially, if we're paying attention, that this is a dream mm-hmm. that we're seeing again, that we're seeing this dream. And that's an interesting scene because the look on Diane's face, when she looks at the other Diane, this is weird describing it, but it is. <laughs> that look again is what I note about that dream, Re- being a resident in LA and in Hollywood being resigned to anonymity or relative anonymity as an actress, being rejected for roles. Uh, As Diane notes, she didn't get the role and the lead in the Sylvia North story, which is the film within this film, or should I say the film within this dream, but I digress. Well, not only that, she also, part of the dream is uh, for the, the, the lead, it's presumably the Sylvia North story is the movie that uh, Adam is directing in the first dream, I guess. Uh, it makes sense that if she's resentful that she didn't, that she lost the, the lead in that movie to Camilla, that she would concoct this whole conspiracy storyline in her dream where the Castigliani brothers... And there's, you know, the cowboy and this all this like, oh, no, you have to hire her, even though the other person is better um, to justify why she why she missed out on that opportunity. Right. Again, it is the power of the mind to create our own movies, which are essentially dreams. Dreams mm-hmm. are our own movies. And we cast ourselves as heroes or heroines and sometimes as villains. We cast other people in different roles. And, and so that's when I realized just how intriguing and powerful Mulholland Drive was and how layered to a certain extent it is and how profoundly revealing and fascinating this movie is. Mm-hmm. Not because it just uses all the tools of the trade, as I noted before, but because of what it is essentially saying, not it's not just simply this, this dissection of the Hollywood film industry and about being an actress, but it's also much deeper. It is not just about the film factory that is Hollywood, but our own factory of the mind mm-hmm. that creates films. And, you know, just as a filmmaker can create films in his head, and ideas for films in his head. So actors and actresses create ideas about themselves. Yeah. I and think, I think that's what's happening here in Mulholland Drive. It's also, in a way, it's it's kind of easy to see how this would have worked as a television series because mm. especially early on, you know, we mentioned the diner scene, 
there's the what's the character's name there's uh joe there's the scene where where he you know he shoots somebody and then mm-hmm. shoots another woman in the other room and then <laughs> and then like the janitor he has to take it becomes like it it almost there's early on in the film there are sections where it does feel it does feel episodic it almost feels like it's toying with different genres at times you know you have this mm-hmm. like a horror movie then you have like this kind of like black comedy then it's like it, it's it sort of jumps around a little so it's easy to see how exactly. how uh lynch might have had this be like feel initially yeah. like the most random television series of all time and then yeah. and then you know kind of thread it all together with the with the reveal in the last you know the last uh chunk of it you you made an interesting point there you know, the feel of some of these scenes are like different films. Mm-hmm. Again, going back to um, my analysis of the film, what you're seeing are the creation of different films within this film, right? Different dreams, yep. different aspects of the dream, I should say, are like different films. The assassin, the hitman, is basically engaged in this sort of, it's almost not quite slapstick but it's almost a sort of a dark comedy. Yeah, absolutely. And it, when I saw the movie like nearly 20 years ago, I, I remember that the people in the audience were howling at that scene uh, or some were howling at that scene. They were just laughing their asses off. It was, um, I think, unexpected. I don't think anyone thought they'd see anything like that in a David Lynch film or didn't expect it. It's the film that never, over the years that I've seen it, it never loses a step. It just never does. I don't, I don't think I've ever been bored looking at it. And I've seen it, I don't know how many times, maybe three to five times, maybe over the years. And it, it just, it's always intriguing, always fascinating, always riveting, always riveting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think some of the sequences like that, where, where it is designed in a way, like, like you were saying, to be, to be comedic, to be, to sort of lull the audience into, Hey, you're watching a movie. You know how these kinds of things only happen in a movie. I think that that only underscores the, the reveal itself at the last moment that the theater you're sitting in is, is club silencio, you know, silence your cell phones, they say, right before the movie starts. Right. So I think that there's, uh, I think that's, that kind of serves that, that purpose as well. Um, in addition to just, you know, making the, keeping the audience engaged in, in this compelling sort of multi-layered uh, narrative. But I liked also the thing we mentioned earlier about the, the transition from the first dream to the second dream. I mean, we literally, she literally opens the blue box and then we enter the box, you know, the camera goes right into it. So we were literally going, falling down, a, you know, another rabbit hole, essentially. Right. So I think visually he also makes that, uh, makes that pretty, pretty apparent right. as well. Yeah, it's sort of interesting. And this gets into sort of a second analysis of mine of the film, which is a more personal one. Mm-hmm. Um, when I saw the film in 2001, I was giving my age away, but I was 31 and um, I was a a journalist and I was a writer. And over the years since, I wound up rather unexpectedly 
uh, becoming an actor on the side, which I never really expected to do. Mm-hmm. So I had stopped, as I mentioned, I was uh, writing as a film critic and reviewer and I covered film festivals in Hawaii um, for years, for 15 years or whatever it was. And I had written for Ain't It Cool News as a reviewer from 2002 to 2010. And I started acting as a local actor in Hawaii in 2010. And basically at this point, I'm stopped primarily because of COVID. So I've done short films and I've done indie films and I've done theater. So what I find when I see Mulholland Drive now is a personal analysis as an actor, because as I mentioned before, the protagonist, as we all know, is an actress. Mm -hmm. Betty's an actress. Unlike in 2001, when I wasn't an actor, as somebody who has been an actor and who's done tiny little films, you know, student films and indie films, I know what it's like to be in front of a camera and I know what it's like to play a part. And so I now look at Mulholland Drive with a very, also with a very different point of view. And that is an actor's point of view. Uh, or somebody who's been in some minor part of the industry or some aspect, mostly tiny. I did live in L.A. twice, once in 1996 and, and the, the other time in 2008. I was never an actor in L.A., so it's odd. I've been an actor, but somewhere else. And I lived in L.A. twice, but I was never an actor in L.A. I was a writer in L.A. It, it's very yeah. interesting. I can now bring that perspective, which I never had. I don't like being the personal. I mean, part of looking at a film for any individual is bringing the personal with you. hundred percent. Yeah. I don't like as a reviewer years ago, I never tried to do that, but now I find, uh, you know, you know, other than some aspect of life that you have an understanding of that's in the film. But now with Mulholland drive, I find I can't, view the film just from a remove. I have to view it as an actor. Mm-hmm. albeit not someone who worked in LA as an actor. So my personal analysis is of the industry and of uh, the or aspects of the industry. It's intriguing to me when I look at this film, it, it, it's, it, it's interesting. It's fascinating to me on another level. The audition scene. I saw that scene recently. And I've been like any other actor. You know, when you saw the scene with Betty and Rita going over the script, I've done that. I've done that with other actors. Um, I don't know if I've done that with other people, but I certainly have done that with other actors. When I saw the audition scene and I saw all the people in, you know, you're looking at the producer, you're looking at the actor that that Betty's doing the scene with. Um, you're looking at the director, Bob Brooker, who's sort of an absent-minded hack. Um, you're looking at agent and her assistant. You're looking at all these people. What it reminded me of was a student film I had done where I was playing a headmaster, I think, at a school. And we shot at 
at a, I think it was some kind of center across from the University of Hawaii. So we were in one of these houses where we were in an office and I'm sitting behind an office and there must have been like 20 or 30 people in that room. So you're talking about somebody at a director's at a table looking at a monitor. You've got a cameraman. You've got other people with you got a guy with him, you know, holding a, a holding a mic. You've had other people. So you've got a crowded room of people while I'm talking to two actresses. I think it was an older woman and then it was a younger woman because she was playing the mother and she was a student. So I'm a headmaster at school. <laughs> and so when I saw that scene with the audition, the crowdedness of it brought back memories to me as an actor. And so there was a resonance there. I mean, it's interesting that, that how cramped that room is. Mm-hmm. You know, most people would look at that and they would go, maybe they wouldn't think much of it, but most people would go, but they really hold an audition like that. And, you know, kind of a office that's that crowded <laughs> with like 10 people in a little room. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't see that when you look at auditions, most times you see auditions in movies, even somebody's behind a desk, you're in front, the actors in front of them. And, you know, it's a big enough room. It's like a conference room or, or some kind of, or a bigger office. But that's like a tiny little office. And you see those people crowded around. It brought back memories to me as an actor. And what I saw was how Betty's able to create this powerful performance. And it just brought back what actors go through. All the conditions and all the aspects of the day you know it's clear when when betty's doing the scene with this guy i don't think she particularly likes this actor mm-hmm. you know the guy who's played by chad everett and you could kind of tell this was kind of pitched as a tv pilot uh and done as a tv pilot because you have chad everett there who used to be on medical center and you had uh i think his name james karen as the producer he was on the pilot of the tv show moonlighting so I'm, 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 but I'm, I'm looking at that scene and it brought back memories to me as an actor. And so I think the other aspect for me looking at um, Mulholland Drive is looking at it from an actor's point of view, which I don't want to bring to it, but I don't really have much of a choice. Mm-hmm. And to see the personal aspect in regards to the industry. Um, again, I never worked in LA and I was a local theater actor. I was doing little films and aspects, but you have an understanding of what it's like to be in that mind, uh, and to be in that headspace, to be in that, some of those conditions or type conditions. And I think one of the aspects that I think Mulholland drive drives home is, the sort of difficult nature of the industry, not just for women, not just for actresses, but I think in general, I mean, when you look at the Adam Kesher character, you have, you know, his kind of thread there in the film where he's meeting with the Castiglione brothers and they want him to cast Camilla Rhodes. 
And of course, there is the now famous phrase, this is the girl. Mm -hmm. And there's another aspect of the industry. You know, David Lynch has said in interviews that when you don't have final cut, you really you really don't have control over a movie. You know, and I guess Lynch had suffered that on the on on the shooting of uh, the production of Dune. He didn't have final cut over that movie. And so there's a loss of control. And so that's another aspect of of the industry. It's with this Adam Kesher character is the loss of personal autonomy over a film. Another aspect of the industry for someone like Betty we see in the first dream, she starts out all bushy tailed and bright eyed and smiling and happy, happy go lucky and pleasant. And when we see Diane in the latter dream, she's in this dingy house pouring coffee for herself and pleasuring herself. Uh, and not even, and, and not even enjoying it too. That's the right. other thing. Like, Naomi, like there's like so it's completely devoid of of joy or any kind of positivity or emotion. And I read something that Naomi Watts said that was such a difficult sequence to shoot for you know obvious reasons. But that right. uh, David Lynch, like I think, had some kind of a tent or something over mm-hmm. her so she wouldn't necessarily have to be exposed to the entire you know crew when they were shooting that. But yeah, it's those. It's yeah, it's just in a real depressive state. I think in that right. And it, and it seeps through. And so we see, especially when she, um, much, much like echoing the some of the opening scenes in the film with the limousine that comes up, comes up the drive and then stops. But that limousine at the beginning had Rita in it. So we see the limousine in the second dream with Diane, who was mm-hmm. Betty, in it. People are going to be confused hearing this, but <laughs> when you watch the movie, maybe you'll understand. To some uh, degree, yes. <laughs> yeah. I have to say it this way, but Diane, who was Betty, is now in the second dream in this limousine. And much right. like Rita in the first dream, she states, we don't, what are you doing? We don't stop here. But mm-hmm. this time she's taken up by Camilla who was Rita (laughs) (laughs) and brought up to via a shortcut to this house where there's a party. And in the party, uh, Diane states she wanted the lead in Sylvia North and she went up for it, but didn't get it. And so there is that palpable sense of frustration Mm-hmm. Or and again, as I mentioned before, within that dream, the sense of resignation and maybe to some extent alienation, but also obvious rejection because actors go through rejection, and you don't get a part, you don't get a part, and that's another aspect is the sense of rejection, the sense of not 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 getting what you wanted, not being able to, to, to be and play who you want. 
that I've seen with actors mm-hmm. myself right? as an actor. Actors have different ways of dealing with it. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I was never a full-time actor. I, I never wanted to be a full-time actor. I never wanted to be an actor. Um, but I was never a full-time actor. I was up until about 2017, a professional freelance journalist and writer. So I had a career already and a career I was focused on. So it was a lot easier, I think, for me as an actor, because I didn't have what that character, Diane, wants. Right. You know, that level of success. You know, success didn't matter to me. If I get a part, great. If I don't, I don't. At some point, though, I think you get tired. And you see that also with, I think, the, the Diane character in the second dream fatigue mm-hmm. a sense of when i mentioned before when she looks and says you're back and sees camilla slash rita and then looks again and sees herself the right. look that her doppelganger her sort of dream within a dream doppelganger gives her is that sense of reality of uh, being realistic? It's a sort of disgusted, you know, like you need to grow up, you need to move on. I think yeah. that's also the scene that where there's also where there's the visual cue of uh, the ashtray that the neighbor came by and, and took, and then it kind of reappears right when Camilla right. slash Rita shows up. But there's another thing that I think you know, this, everything that you're saying with how this movie captures the sort of frustration and pressure of being a performer. I think that's a sort of subgenre of movies. That's really, really gained a lot of traction in, uh, in Hollywood in the last decade or so, especially specifically with the, the doppelganger thing. I'm thinking of something like um, black Swan, which is very much like the pressure that that character is under the competition that she like, uh, you know, hallucinates this whole like uh, sex sequence with her and then fantasizes about, you know, that she murdered her, but it's really herself. And it's like, it's a whole like self-loathing cycle, you know, things like um, Birdman or the wrestler, like a lot of these movies and filmmakers have really delved into the toll that that takes on uh, uncreative creative people or performers of, of any of many different kinds. And I think that's this movie, you know, right. definitely captures that as well. And, and, you know, perhaps is, was influential in some of these, some of these other movies more recently that I mentioned, kind of starting that new next wave of uh, sort of meta commentary on performances. Right. You know, that's an interesting point as somebody who's done local theater, I find Birdman fascinating. Hey, to mm-hmm. make an aside, but I make it fascinating as somebody who has done theater. I completely understand it as a local theater actor, though I've never been on Broadway. But, you know, they're just aspects of this business that are seen in movies that, unless you're an actor in any way, shape, or form, you really just don't. The average person can't understand. I hate, I never thought mm-hmm. I'd say this as somebody who used to review movies and be at film festivals and meet actors and meet directors and meet producers. Um, but it's, it's true. You really don't understand 
aspects of this business until you're in the business. Mm-hmm. Then you get it. I didn't want to get it. I had no interest in getting it, but I found myself an actor and I, I now can't. That's why I don't review films anymore because I can't. I, I don't have the detachment. I, don't, I can't look at a film the same way or TV the same way that I did before mm. because it, it's different. I mean, I know what it's like to get in front of that camera and have to do this take and go to that take and that take in regards to coverage and get it because, you know, they got to get the shot and they need to move on to the next shot. And so it's, it's, it's a very different animal. It's a very different world. And you can see it. I mean, I think one of the things Mulholland Drive has been cited as in terms of analysis is how Hollywood treats actresses. I think mm-hmm. that's accurate to a certain extent. <laughs> but this is why I brought up the Adam Kesher character, because I don't think it's just about how Hollywood treats actresses, but I think it's just how Hollywood also treats filmmakers. Yeah. And that's why that character is there, and that's why that character is important. And he's played by Justin Theroux, who has this sort of nerdy is kind of skinny, geeky, nerdy kind of persona. I mean, that kind of uh, optic, that kind of aesthetic. So when we look at his thread and his part of the story, it's interesting. Obviously, we've been talking about David Lynch because he's the driving force of any movie he makes. And he was Oscar nominated for, for Best Director for this, which is shockingly the only nomination this movie received but i mean maybe not shockingly considering how how kind of uh bizarre in in some ways it is and that's not normally the academy's uh thing but i i also found a little uh ironic that uh betty naomi watts's character for the first stream at least uh that she has this whole scene about you know oh i'd rather be a, be known as a great actress versus a movie star considering that I feel like Naomi Watts has fallen into that place. I mean, she's one of the classic uh, classic actresses in Hollywood that got so close to being like the next big thing and then kind of fell back into doing smaller movies again. A year after this, she had, you know, she was in The Ring, her big like Hollywood breakthrough, and then King Kong a few years later, again, playing a, an actress, and then has been doing, you know, smaller movies in the last few years, the impossible, for example, things like that. Uh, but I, it's generally as she, she's in Birdman. That's, that's true. I forgot that. Um, she's, uh, she's also, you know, one of those people that like film critics and, and movie lovers really are drawn to because she makes interesting choices, but she's never achieved the, the air quote movie star status. I would say. That's an interesting point. I don't know. I mean, I think, that um, Naomi has stated in interviews that uh, she was kind of auditioning and I guess getting roles for at least a decade, you know, and it was frustrating. And when she got to got called up to see Lynch for this, for this film, you know, she had a kind, she got a chance to, I think to meet him and I think to have a connection and I can understand that as somebody who's gone auditions. 
Um, certainly I never auditioned in LA and certainly never was a full-time professional in LA, but I certainly know what it's like to do auditions. And I certainly know what it's like to, to go through that process. And I think after a while, it just gets exhausting and it gets tiring. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think I was just tired, even though they're being in a place here like Hawaii, you just don't have lots and lots of auditions for parts because you're auditioning for these indie films and these student films. And, you know, the actors lot in a place like Hawaii, which is odd to talk about here. But the reality is when you talk about a, a major Hollywood movie that comes to a place like Hawaii, they're not going to hire local actors to go and take even major supporting roles for the most part. You know, they're going to hire people from LA or New York mm -hmm. or elsewhere. And so, and I've seen that with some actors that, you know, the kind of frustration and not being able to get work and the way that the system is kind of set up here. And so when I see a movie like Mulholland Drive, I get that about Diane slash Betty, mm -hmm. uh, but mostly Diane. I understand that it was never my life because I couldn't focus on it. I, I was kind of in a weird place because I'm this writer who's acting on the side. Right. And, you know, doing films and doing theater eventually. And, and for me, it was, it was, Oh, can I just get, I, I just wanted to be a supporting actor. I just wanted to be a character actor. I never wanted to be a lead in anything, get something where I have maybe a couple pages of lines and I'm fine. You know, mm -hmm. but you don't see that with that character of uh, Diane. She clearly wanted to be a star and she didn't become one. And that's endemic in terms of L.A. I remember when I lived at first lived in L.A. in 96, um, I was walking down Hollywood Boulevard and they had these Polaroid photos of celebrities, some display window of some store or whatever it was. And I remember thinking. What happens to the people who don't become celebrities, who don't become famous actors, who don't become stars, successful? You don't see their photos. Now, of course, this was before the internet. Yeah. This was before the internet really sort of became the internet. It kind of made me think in that instance, you know, being in a place like LA, what, what happens? I think when you look at something like Mulholland Drive, you kind of see, even though it's still in my analysis, my other analysis, the dream state merged with the filmic process. Even though it's still dream state, there's still a representation of reality there. There's a sense of the real. There's a sense of actuality. It's sobering what happens I think in any industry, but more so this one, it just seems sadder in the film business because it can be sadder. There's a lot more at stake. But you could argue that about any industry. You know, there's some people who don't become successful at, you know, lo being lawyers or or being doctors or. But but it hurts more with the entertainment industry because kind of getting it's a harder industry. Well, it, it's yeah, but. It, because the whole industry is is centered on on artifice, on dreams, on you know right. this romantic yeah. vision of what it could be, 
And okay. it's not that as this, as this, you know, as this movie gets to, I feel that's, I feel like uh, one of the big points he's trying to make is that, you know, this is, this is what you want, but just be ready that for the reality will, will kick in. You'll slip down that, that little blue box and you'll, you'll see how, how dark Hollywood and, and, you know, the movie industry can, can really get. You have the two dream states there, the two dreams. Mm -hmm. And so you go from illusion to disillusion. Yeah. That's fantasy represent a reality, but it's primarily illusion to disillusion. So what we see in the second dream is disillusion. But again, my central conceit and and my analysis is that it's also a dream. But Mm -hmm. you go from the hat. I I don't know if you could say that the first dream is a happy dream, that it's a buoyant dream. But the second dream is certainly a nightmare. Right. It's not an outright nightmare. The first dream is also not an entirely happy one because there's a lot of dark elements there, too. A lot of disturbing elements, a lot of really uh, underlying, underlying malevolent mm-hmm. elements. But th- there's so, also there's also elements of of uh, Betty and Rita sort of sleuthing, like sorting out this right. mystery and falling in love in the process. You know, it's a very Hollywoodized you know narrative, I guess. Right. Right. Well, you know, the mystery thing is part of the construction because again it was built on this pilot right so without giving away too much i mean the mystery element was the the central conceit of the pilot what we have again is we have that dream and we have the other dream and they're again going from illusion to disillusion going from fantasy to represent representation of fantasy to representation of reality and it's quite it and, and and I see it as this kind of traveling between from one dream to another, I guess you could say back again, not quite back again, but it's from one dream to another. But the industry aspect of it to me is a kind of melancholy one, especially in the second in the second dream. But both mm-hmm. of them, but both that's why I say there are two aspects. It's some people like to say, and it's not fair, not unfair to say it, that it again, it's about actresses, but I, I would argue it's about filmmakers and actresses because the Adam Kesher character is important because of what he loses. Also, he sees his wife cheating, goes home and sees his wife cheating on him with the pool guy, mm-hmm. cliche of LA and Hollywood. And he winds up in a cheap motel and he's told they've cut off your credit card. You're out of money. It's the nature of that town and that industry and what it can and will do to people unless people bend the knee and bend to their will. And that's what the Kesher character is forced to do. That's why it's always you see the dual aspect in this film. You see the two dreams. You see the two characters uh, Betty and and Diane, you see uh, Rita and Camilla, and you also see uh, what happens to the uh, Diane character and what also happens to the Adam Kesher character. 
And that's not often remarked. Again, dualities. It's it's different aspects happening. The differences between, let's just say, Diane and between the Adam Kesher character is that Adam actually at least vents his frustration. You know, he goes and smashes the, the hood of the car, uh, right. the hood of the limousine. And he does stand up and say, this isn't right. I don't want this actress for my, for the part of the film. He, he, he at least is active. He at least makes a stand. He has to give up his stand or else lose everything. Basically during the meeting, of course, the one of the Castiglione brothers tells him, this isn't your film anymore. And so uh, in a sense, you know, when I, when I, you know, that term, I've seen a video on YouTube under the title, This is the Girl, which is interesting, in analyzing this film. If I were sort of doing a version of Mulholland Drive, I would call it This Isn't the Girl. Because if you look at that second dream, we see that is what happens, Diane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unlike Miller Rhodes, this blonde who ends up I guess ostensibly being cast in the Sylvia North story and Rita who becomes Camilla in the second dream, who's also cast in the Sylvia North story. We also, we see that Diane is left with a smaller role and she's not getting the role she wants. And she also doesn't get stardom. She also doesn't get the roles that she wishes for. Except unlike Adam Kesher, she hasn't made a stand. There's no, there's nothing she's been able to do that we can see other than kind of spiral and self-destruction. That's sort of the industry aspect of it too. What this industry does to people and what it can do to people. In the case of Adam Kesher, it forces them to make the decisions at once. If the if the powers that be want you to cast that girl, you'll cast that girl or that film isn't yours anymore. Won't get final cut. Your decision-making will be absolute nil. That's where the cowboy comes in, right? He's that representation of, in a sense, you know, if you want to use symbols, he's a representation of Hollywood. You know, cowboys are part of the sort of, um, filmic canon of sorts the mythology of hollywood and i believe it was the producer the the guy who played the part of the cowboy was a producer i believe and he wore i think the outfit that he had on was supposedly from tom mix who was a one of the first cowboy stars in hollywood in american films like i said that's why i think when you look at this film, <coughs> in terms of the analysis of that what I'm on right now, the analysis of the industry, I see it again as representing when we look at what the industry does and what it can do. I, that's why I contrast and I look at both Diane, who was Betty, and Adam Kesher, who is still Adam Kesher. Um, and I look at them, again, as part of the dualities in the film, not duality in the film, but dualities in the film. And so I contrast them both together. 
because people kind of sometimes lose sight of that. They kind of wonder, well, his his part, it, you know, it his character is just a means to an end. But I would argue his character is part of the cult, the toll, the cost exacted on talent in Hollywood. In his case, above the line directorial talent, filmmaking talent. In the case of Diane, it's uh, acting talent, performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think Adam's storyline fit. It contributes greatly to both what Lynch is trying to say, what the movie is trying to say, as well as as we as we sort of said earlier, Diane's dream of how how she missed how she lost the role and how the industry squeezed her out. Like I think it works. It fulfills both you know both. Uh, realities of the film the film that we're watching as well as the dream the film i guess that diane is making in her head about her experience in in hollywood and her sort of downward spiral it's an an interesting one i'm glad i'm glad i finally watched it i kind of want to see it again or or do a a deep dive into some youtube more youtube stuff because i'd like to this is the kind of movie that it's especially since lynch hasn't really confirmed anything which you know is is I think the way it, I think the way this movie should be experienced anyway, but it's it, it makes fun to just hear different perspectives and see what right. other people come up with and what they think. You know, the the blue key or or you know uh, mm-hmm. the Silencio theater, what they think all that means. Yeah. Um, obviously, well, we we can we could talk about this for forever, right. but uh, I, is there? Will, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I will. I will briefly state, just to touch on a couple of the symbolic and literal aspects uh, in the, in the film, mm-hmm. that I see the box, that blue box that opens up, as a sort of Pandora's box. Right? It's also a linkage. It yeah. it, it helps move us from one dream to the other. Yep. And and the use of blue also in the in the film. Right? It's bathed in blue at times. Blue is an important color. The woman's hair at the end is is blue. I was just about and to say the key is blue. That the the hitman gives uh, Diane slash Betty is blue, and mm. of course we know in Hollywood, you know, and we know blue blue in a sense is funk, it's depression. It's also what porn uh, movies are called sometimes, or what used to be called. They're called blue movie. Blue is an interesting color as used in in this in this film and in, in, in that, and also the blue box and uh, the use of the key. So I just wanted to touch on a couple of those. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that does that, that that's pretty much all we're going to say about, about Mulholland drive in this episode. Yeah. So Albert Lanier, can you tell people where they can find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at critic incorporated. You can find me on Facebook. Um, you can find me uh, on LinkedIn, I guess. <laughs> I guess I can note one of my emails. I'll, I'll take a chance and note one of my emails. If you want to reach me, you can reach me at mediawriter1 at yahoo.com. That's mediawriter, the number one at yahoo.com. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, definitely people reach out and get Albert on your, uh, on your podcast to talk about film and television. 
thank you so much for for coming back and bringing Mulholland Drive to the to the table. Uh, finally, give me a, a reason to go back and do that. I've said this before on other on other episodes of the podcast, possibly even on your last episode. But it's just like it's 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 nice to have this show as an as a a motivation to go back and finally catch up with some of these like acclaimed movies. And this was a really interesting one. And I'm, I'm, I want to go back and watch more, uh, more of David Lynch. Cause he hasn't even really made that many movies and uh, every one of them that I've seen has been really fascinating. So I think that, that uh, people haven't seen this should definitely check it out. We spoiled a lot for you kind of, um, but it's <laughs> not know. really spoiling because I was going to say, end, can you spoil it? Is it, no, that's a good question. You can't. Yeah. It's an experience. It's like, you can't say I went on this roller coaster. I'm like, yeah, okay. I sorry to spoil it for you. It it goes down. It's a big drop at the end. I'm like, well, that's not exactly the same as going on it. Um, Because it is one of those, it it is really an experience in that way. Uh, But I'm, I'm glad that, you know, we, we just got a chance to talk about it and we will definitely bring you on, uh, bring bring you on again at some point to talk about something else. Another, another deep dive into one of these, uh, sort of dreamlike uh, auteur uh, cinematic uh, works. I feel like Eyes Wide Shut and Mulholland Drive have certain similarities in that regard as well. So uh, we'll have to keep that theme going, perhaps. That's all we have for this week. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Albert Lanier about David Lynch's 2001 psychological thriller, Mulholland Drive. Uh, once again, I want to thank Albert for coming on and bringing... Mulholland Drive to the table. If you can give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts for the show, we'd love to hear some feedback and what you think of these episodes going forward. Again, as I mentioned last week, we're sort of tweaking the premise of the show a little bit more, focusing more on movies that are somewhat off the beaten path. This week was a little bit of an exception since it is roundly considered by cinephiles and critics uh, one of the most acclaimed movies of the last couple of decades. But I still feel like the average moviegoer probably hasn't caught up with Mulholland Drive. Again, it was made, I think, $6 million at the box office, so it was not a huge blockbuster hit or anything. But definitely one worth checking out. It's now streaming on HBO Max as of this recording. So that's all we have for this week. And we'll be back with another episode next time. Until then, keep it crooked. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED.